0: The Lord's Supper, Part 1. The second talk in a series entitled, What We Believe, Answers to Questions, was presented by Ron Julian on March twenty-fifth, two 2001, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2001. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. A brief break occurs in the middle of the following recording. It is the result of the original audio tape switching to the second side. Good morning. We're starting a series, basically addressing a series of questions uh, about... What we around here think about various issues uh, that the church faces. Um, we're going to be talking about things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and worship and a whole series of questions about what we as a church do, why we do some of the things that we do, um, where we may want to change things that we do, where we probably will not be changing things that we do. Um, I thought for a while about how I could come up with a logical follow-up to what we were talking about last week, how to become a Christian, and I realized that it was just going to be too hard to try to make a logical, coherent series out of this, so I have given up. I'm not going to try. I'm just going to go from question to question. So the question of the day is we're going to talk about uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, not because that's the logical thing to go to after w- what we talked about last week, but just because that's one of the things on the list. So uh, if there are, in your mind, questions that came up from what we talked about last week and you think, you know, there, there's a topic that would be really great to address in here, let me know, and that would be fine. I, this doesn't have to go in any particular order. At least it's not going to go in any particular order, so that's the way it is. I want to start talking about the Lord's Supper today. Uh, It'll take us a couple of weeks to go through this material, I think. Um, The terms involved, if you've probably come across several words that people use. uh, You know, perhaps, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had one last meal with his disciples, uh, and in the midst of that meal, he took bread and wine and said this is my body of the bread this is my blood of the wine and ever since then the christian church has in one way or another observed this ceremony that he introduced sometimes it's referred to as the eucharist and that comes from the greek word that means to give thanks What happened is, in the text, it says that Jesus took the bread and broke it and gave thanks. Well, the word Eucharist comes from that. He gave thanks over the bread. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the Lord's Supper. And we get this, I think, from 1 Corinthians 11. In this passage, Paul is writing the Corinthians about what he sees as problems in the church. And one of the problems that he addresses is the way they celebrate this particular rite, the way they do this thing, the attitude that they show in the midst of it. We will definitely talk about this passage, although not right now. But he has some rather sharp language for them. And one of the things he says is, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And by this language, we'll see, he he means to be quite sort of sarcastic to them. Whatever it is you're eating, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating when you do this because of the attitude with which you're doing it. And I think with that phrase that Paul used, has we've taken that up and used that to refer to this, um, eating the bread and drinking the grape juice. Um, and then sometimes you hear it referred to as communion, and I think that comes from... Probably most directly from Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 10, where he's warning the Corinthians about idolatry, and he uses this language, "...is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread." And that idea of the oneness, the sharing, the fellowship, the communion together, I think probably the, the language comes from Paul's language there. So you've heard that language. Refer to the Eucharist. Usually when people talk about the Eucharist, they're talking about, uh, they're coming from a more sacramental sort of view. Eucharist is kind of a high church sort of term. More often, in the sort of circles that I have hung around in with as a Christian, you hear referred to communion or the Lord's Supper. In keeping with a great tradition around here, you'll remember that when Jack uh, started teaching in Acts, he took us into the Gospel of John. Uh, I'm going to start by taking us to a passage that has nothing to do with communion at all. We're going to look at uh, John chapter 6. The reason I want to go here is, although I would argue this passage has very little to do with the ceremony that we think of as communion, um, this passage has greatly influenced the church's view of communion. In particular, Jesus says in John six uh, in verse fifty three. So he who eats me, he shall also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Well, you can understand how we might naturally jump to the conclusion that Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and At the Last Supper, when he brings out the bread and the wine, he talks about the bread being his body and the wine being his blood. So it's not necessarily an inappropriate connection. It is not stupid to think that he might be talking about the same thing here. But there is an assumption that people bring to a text like this that I think we need to be aware of. As I've been reading this, Uh, This week, uh, some of the things that people have said about communion, one of the things that you discover is that in Christian circles, in scholarly circles, uh, the people who talk about this sort of thing, there is this great assumption that is made that Jesus basically came for the purpose of establishing a religion that his purpose was to set out a, a very detailed liturgy and that the, the preoccupation of the apostles afterwards was to make sure that everybody got this liturgy right. And so the importance of what happened in the upper room there is that Jesus gave us, he instituted this particular liturgical practice and here's how you're supposed to do it. And likewise then, when we come to a passage like this, it, it's actually pretty common to see people when they come to John 6 basically assume, why else would Jesus be talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood if he wasn't talking about the sacrament of communion? Because after all, that's what Jesus came to do, is to set up this religion. And here's this great opportunity for him to tell us what the supernatural impact of this sacrament that he is setting up is. Here is the place where he sits down and tells us, this is why I have you eating that bread and drinking that wine, because this is how you find life, by eating that bread and drinking that wine. That assumption that Jesus' purpose was to establish a religion and to teach us what it was and to teach us what we ought to be eating and drinking in order to practice that religion is a very common one to make and i I emphasize it at the beginning because i want you to understand where i'm coming from it's probably very helpful to understand for a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about in this series is that as i read the bible i have come to the conclusion that jesus did not primarily set out to establish a religion or set up a liturgy or give us a set of practices that we are supposed to be following That's not his purpose. And this passage in John 6 is almost a model of that, of how if you take a certain turn in your thinking, you can go very liturgical. But if you actually stop and pay attention to the context and follow the argument through, the passage actually is suggesting something quite different than that, I think. So... I wanted to start with this passage to talk about what Jesus is saying in John 6 and how he's saying it and what his point is so that when we look at the particular passages that deal with the Lord's Supper, we'll have this as a background and we will not get distracted by the thought, well, but yeah, but there's that stuff where he tells us that, that eating the Eucharist is the way you get life. We will look at that first so that we know what it was that he was saying. So, um, we're going to be starting kind of in the middle of chapter 6. Let me give you a little background here. In John 6, we read about the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle that Jesus um, does where he's been teaching and there are all these people there that have been listening to him And the disciples start worrying about what are all of these people going to eat? And Jesus has them gather up uh, bread and fish and there's hardly enough to feed the disciples, much less 5,000 plus people. And Jesus takes and starts breaking the bread and the fish and passing it out and he miraculously extends it so that there is more than enough for everyone there. They they gather up all these leftovers at the end. This obviously was a very great miracle and something that really caught people's attention. That evening, the disciples go off in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus follows them by walking across the Sea of Galilee. Another great miracle. In the morning, we start reading at verse 22, The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Natural enough question, we can't quite figure out how you ended up here. But they came looking for him, not just out of random curiosity, as we'll see as we go along, but they had a reason for following him. And Jesus basically confronts them with that reason in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, (coughs) not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Okay, so... The loaves he's referring to here, this is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. This particular group of people, um, many of them saw Jesus perform this miracle. They ate of the bread that he passed out and they are following him because they're very interested in a guy who can miraculously provide bread. Whenever I talk about this passage, I always think that it's helpful for us in this culture to stop and remember that for many of us, the connection between hard work and having something to eat has gotten a little dulled. Some of us have grown up living lives where we just expect that there's going to be food on the table. I mean, I grew up that way. My dad went off to work, I know, but I just got up every day and there was going to be something for breakfast and there was going to be something for lunch and my mom was going to make dinner, and there'd be dinner there I mean it was just that 's the way life was that was that was sort of your inalienable right is you just get up and people feed you that was that was how I grew up and and i don 't think i 'm the only person who grew up that way. Um, in the culture that we 're looking at here, as has been true for most of the world 's history, they had much more of a sense of you know, our food depends on. You've got to get out there and till the ground and grow the crops, and we're really dependent on whether the rains come at the right time. And uh, there's a lot of hard work involved in making sure that there is food on the table. And sometimes it gets scary. Sometimes there's drought. Sometimes the locusts come, and and then we get afraid for our lives. Where is the food going to come from that is going to keep us alive? So to to see a man who's come from God, miraculously spread bread all around, this is a great thing because this is what we need, right? It is so hard to put food on the table and here's somebody who can do it by miracle. God must have sent him to us to solve the problem. God cursed the ground at the time of the fall, and we've been working it by the sweat of our brow, but here is God sent someone now, this must be the Messiah, because he's come to solve our problem. Food is going to be abundant and easy to come by through the miracle of God. Well, Jesus said to them, basically, that's why you're here. You're not here because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And implicit in what he's saying here is, what I did when I miraculously multiplied the bread was not intended to be God's endorsement of the view that man lives by bread alone. I didn't come here and do that to reinforce the idea in you that my biggest problem is that I need to find a a reliable source of food. That's not what it was there for. It was a sign. It was a miracle, and that miracle was meant to say, God is behind what this man is saying and doing. The sign is meant to point to Jesus as the Messiah. It's meant to point to him as the one sent by God. And so the appropriate question to ask the one who performs a miracle like that, is not when is the next meal, but what are you here for? You have been sent by God. We have seen the miracles you have done that show that God is with you. Now, tell us. If you're from God, then you must be our leader. Tell us where to go. What are you here for? What do you want of us? Instead, Jesus is saying, what they came for is, they ate the food, they said, hey, this is great, let's get some more of that, and they followed Jesus. Jesus says to them, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. The seal... This is the picture of God. It's like the seal of approval. This is the the mark that God has put on Jesus saying, this is the one. Listen to him. And when he says God has set his seal on him, he's alluding to the sign, to the miracles that he has done, that God has testified that this is the one to whom you should listen. God didn't do this because food is the most important thing. Because as he says here, the problem is, that the food that you're interested here is the food which perishes. It doesn't last. And implicit in what he's saying, it's going to come out more explicitly here in a minute, is the idea that when you eat this food, you don't last. This food may keep you alive for a while, but it's not going to hold off the problem of death. It's just postponing it. But the problem is still there you have a serious problem in front of you. Death awaits you. And you can eat this bread that I multiplied all day long, but it's not going to solve that problem. So don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. This is the food that lasts. And it leads to eternal life. You eat this food and you last. All right, now... Really, we have here kind of the key to this whole passage. This is, this is the beginning that shows us what this whole thing is about. The crowd is looking for more bread. And Jesus is contrasting with that the idea that there is this food, this bread that you ought to be seeking that is the real thing, that, is, that leads to eternal life. That is the metaphor that's going to drive everything that Jesus has to say. The crowd has come looking for bread, and he's saying, you're looking for the wrong bread. There's another bread that you ought to be looking for. That's that's what this passage is about. And so far, what we know about this contrast between these two breads that he's talking about is that one of them perishes and one of them endures to eternal life. The kind of bread that we eat that keeps us going from day to day doesn't last and ultimately we won't last either. But the bread that he's talking about, the bread that he's talking about, it endures, and we live forever if we eat it. So, they said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay, Jesus has said, You're working for the wrong bread. Work for the bread that endures. So they say, okay, you're saying that we're supposed to work for this, so what does God want us to do? What do you mean? What are the works that you want us to do to get this bread? And what he says is, this is the work of God. This is what I'm saying that you ought to do. That you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, believe in me. Believe in Jesus. You're working for the wrong bread. You ought to be working for the stuff that endures. And what does that mean? How do you do that? I mean, do you go and plant something in the ground? Do you follow Jesus around everywhere? What, what is it exactly that you do? You believe in Him. You see Him. You look at the sign. You say, this is the one that God has sent, and you believe in Him. That's the work that you do. Now, I kind of think of this in terms of rounds. This is a very interesting passage to me because there is this dialogue going on between Jesus and the crowd. And Jesus answers them in in the terms with which they ask. They ask something and he comes back at them with a response that picks up on their language and takes it a little further. So I kind of think of it as like being in rounds. And we can say that we just went through round one. That was the first round. And what we have here basically is... Pretty straightforward. There is one metaphor in this section that Jesus is using. The idea that there is this bread to eat that you ought to work for. But otherwise, he's being quite explicit. It is eternal life that you're seeking and you get it by believing in Jesus. So, for the most part, he's speaking quite straightforwardly. He's telling what it's about. It's about eternal life, and you get it by believing in me. But there's this one metaphor, this one picture that he's using. And what you're getting, what you're seeking after is the bread which endures. Not like that bread that, that you ate yesterday that I passed out, but this other bread. That's the, that's the analogy that he's using. Okay, so now we go to round two. They said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now this is an interesting response of the crowd. Jesus just talked about how they didn't follow him because of the sign. And the sign was what was happen- happened yesterday, that he mult- miraculously multiplied the bread and the fish. Here they're saying, all right, okay, we got you. You're saying we're supposed to believe in the one that he sent and they figured it out. You're talking about yourself. Okay, so we're ready to do that. But what sign are you going to do? What sign are you going to do to show us that you're the one that we ought to be following? Well, on the one hand, you would think that feeding 5,000 people from a couple of loaves of bread would be a miraculous sign enough. And it would be If what you were really looking for is the miraculous sign that shows this is the one sent by God and you're coming to him to find out what he's about. But if you have a different attitude about what it is that God must obviously be all about, then it's not enough. Feeding the 5,000 yesterday was a great start. But the fact is, I don't know if you've noticed Jesus, but today is another day. And that's gone. That doesn't work. You feed, you eat all of that bread one day and you come back the next day and you're hungry again. So what we're looking for is that sort of sign that would show that you're the guy that we're expecting. You're the one that we're looking for. And then they remind him of what happened in the Exodus when Israel left Egypt through the miraculous intervention of God, one of the miracles that God performed is he sent this manna from the sky. Here's God miraculously sent providing for the life of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. See, when God sent the manna, he didn't just send it one day to, to show, see, I can do miracles, and then they went hungry for 40 years in the wilderness. He sent it every day. This is the bread he sent to make sure that they had something to eat every day. Well, okay. So, obviously, Moses is kind of like the pattern that we have come to expect. And in fact, I've never been able to, to confirm this, but what I hear is that it was the expectation of many of the Jews at the time that when the Messiah came, he would reinstitute the manna. So... In that sense then, hey, great, the miraculous feeding, this looks like this might be the guy. So now, do it. Let's have the real thing. Let's have the food from the sky every day, all the time, that sh- will show us that you're the Messiah and that you're the one that we should follow. I mean, this was this was reasonable to them. I mean, this is what they expected, wouldn't... Isn't God, God is the source of life, God is the source of blessing. Um, what other blessing could we want but to be fed every day? I mean, how can you do better than that? Okay, so Jesus comes back to them then on their terms. Okay, they're saying, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. The manna was the bread out of heaven. And so Jesus says, okay... You want to talk about bread out of heaven? Let's talk about bread out of heaven. And here's what he says. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now he's making a contrast here. And... It might be a little misleading. I don't think he's saying, he's not saying to them, oh, you guys got it wrong. It wasn't Moses that brought the manna down. It was God who sent the manna down. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that stuff that happened through the ministry of Moses, the manna coming down from the sky, that really doesn't deserve to be called bread out of heaven. I mean, I see why you're saying that, you know. It kind of came down with the dew and was there on the ground and it was sent by God. So, okay, bread out of heaven. But if you want to talk about the true bread out of heaven, the true bread out of heaven is the, the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, the eternal life that Jesus was just talking about. The manna is not God sending bread from heaven. There is something else that is God sending bread from heaven. It is the thing that God sent that gives life to the world, that conquers death and brings life to his people. That's the bread out of heaven. That's the thing that really deserves to be called the bread out of heaven. And then the question is, of course, well, what is that? What are you talking about? That sounds great. And so the crowd said, they said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. This sounds great. Hey, it's better than the manna. You're saying we got God sending even better stuff than the manna was. Wonderful. That we want it. Do it right now. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall not shall never thirst. Here is, here is the great turn. Here, here's where Jesus turns around and ex- makes explicit to them what it is He's getting at. I've been talking about this bread that you ought to seek. It's the bread that's going to bring eternal life. It's the bread that really deserves to be called the bread from heaven. This is what God sent to bring life to the world. Now, what is it? What am I talking about? What is this bread? I am the bread. I who am standing before you, Jesus of Nazareth, I am the bread sent from heaven to bring life to the world. What am I asking you to do? I am asking you to come to me and believe in me. The one who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Here we're working this metaphor again about bread. You're hungry. You ate some bread yesterday and you were filled, but now today you're hungry again. Well, I'm telling you, I am the bread that if you eat this bread, you will never hunger. It will satisfy completely. And if you drink this that I have come to bring for you to drink, you will never thirst. So, again, Jesus is going back and forth between the literal reality and this picture of eating and now drinking. But he's been very explicit. Eternal life is the goal coming to me and believing in me is the way you get it, and I am the one who has come to bring this eternal life. That's what he's getting at. All the time playing with the language of eating and drinking. Why is he talking about bread out of heaven? They started it. They're the ones who started talking about bread out of heaven. He's saying, oh, okay, well, that's a very interesting topic because as it happens, I'm the bread out of heaven. Obviously when he talks about hungering and thirsting, he's not talking literally. We're still in, the, in this metaphor. He doesn't mean that if you come to Jesus that you will never feel the pangs of hunger, you will never want to eat food again. The hunger and thirst that he's talking about here is something more profound. It is, it is a hunger and thirst that only the eternal life that he has come to bring can satisfy. Which sort of reminds us that although Jesus doesn't go into it an awful lot here, when he talks about eternal life, he does have in mind the conquest of death. But it's more than that. It's not just continuing to exist forever. I mean, I've said this a lot, but as I look at myself, and my existence in this world, for God to say, good news, you're going to exist forever, sounds more like a curse than a blessing. Because there is a problem that needs to be solved here. To live forever like this, I, I think that this would get really old after a while. I mean, you know, the third millennium of being... A sinner who hurts myself and other people through my selfishness and thoughtlessness and so on in a body that's not what it used to be. Um, I don't, it doesn't sound like such a great deal. But of course, it's not that. I mean, the whole point is that the eternal life that he's pointing to is life lived under the reign of God, where death has been conquered in all its forms, including the sin that, that has so corrupted the world. I mean, that's what we're talking about. So when we talk about our hunger and thirst being gone, that which truly satisfies, that which we're really looking for, that will really sustain us, is what he's offering, not just continued existence. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Okay, the issue is whether you believe in me. And in fact, he's saying to the crowd, most of you don't. You have seen me and yet you do not believe. What I'm telling you is the one who comes to me and believes, I will raise up on the last day. You will die, but death will not hold you. I will raise you up. And ultimately, who is it that is going to be raised in this way? It is the one who believes. And who is that? It is the ones that the Father gives him. He's going to get even more explicit about that here in a minute. The issue is belief. And everyone who comes to him in the way that he's describing, he will raise up on the last day. the Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said I am the bread that came down out of heaven and I would see this as kind of beginning the, the third round in the second round he has taken their language about the bread from heaven and said okay I'm that bread I'm the one that has come from heaven to give life now we go to round three and it really starts to get weird They were grumbling because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Okay, so they're following him. I mean, up to a point, they're understanding what he's saying. You're the bread of life. You've come down from heaven to give life to the world. Isn't this, I mean, he he was like, You know, over in Nazareth, wasn't you know? His dad was Joseph, and what is he talking about? Who does he think he is? Okay, and so Jesus now responds to their grumbling about what? What in the world is he talking about? He says, "Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day." It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, this one section here deserves an awful lot of attention, and it's attention I'm not going to give to it this morning. Uh, I will content myself in pointing out that it's a classic passage dealing with the relationship between my choices and God's choices. Because on the one hand in this section, Jesus is making it very clear that we must choose to believe. We must come to him. And yet at the same time, he's saying things like, it is the one who is drawn by the Father who comes to him. And only those who are drawn by the Father will come to him. <clears throat> His particular reason for talking about it here is that he's addressing their dr- grumbling and basically saying, The fact that you guys will not accept what I'm talking about is not really my problem. It's not that what I'm saying is so hard to understand. It's that you have not been drawn by the Father. Everyone who has been drawn by the Father will come to me and believe in me. And the fact that you guys are not there seems to indicate that something else is going on. Okay, now... Now we come to the language here that brings us to the, the, the part that is often used by people to refer to the Eucharist. We haven't gotten there yet, but now we're starting to get there. But we needed to come up upon it because we needed to follow this discussion, this dialogue that he's having with the people. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay. Most of what he's saying is a recapitulation of what he said before. I'm the bread of life. Don't be so preoccupied with the manna. All of your forefathers who ate that manna are gone now. It ultimately didn't do them any good. I mean, it it served the purpose. It kept them going through the wilderness, but it didn't really solve their problem. But this bread which has come down out of heaven does solve the problem. If you eat this bread, he shall live forever. The new piece of information that he gives here is, now I'm going to tell you what that bread is. I said that I'm the bread, but how is that? In what sense is that true? How is it that I am going to be this bread? Is it that I'm going to come and tell you useful information and you're going to follow that useful information and that's how you're going to arrive at eternal life? Well, there's some of that. But in essence, the way He is the bread, the way that He brings life to the world is through His flesh. It is his body that is, is going to be the bread that brings life to the world. Notice here the mixture of the reality and the metaphor. The bread is the metaphor. The bread that I give for the world is my flesh. His flesh is the reality. He means that. It is literally something that I'm going to do with my body that is going to bring life to the world. Well, again, it's hard to understand what he's getting at for the crowd. It would be hard for anyone because he's being sort of cryptic. But ultimately, it's understandable. But it is also understandable that the crowd at this point starts to say, What in the world are you talking about? The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is really disgusting. What are you talking about? We're going to—is this some kind of pagan cannibalistic rite or something that we're—you know—you're going to—we're all going to sit around and, and eat your body or something? This is awful. What what kind of a weirdo are you? I mean, that really is the the level at which it's starting to get. Is it? Going, what in the world are you talking about? But for those of us who are paying attention along the way, what he's saying is quite profound. What he's saying is bread doesn't bring life. I am the real bread that brings life. And how am I going to bring that life? I'm going to do it through my body. The really striking thing now at this point is that when the crowd starts saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I I have always been struck by this. And I don't know quite what to do with it. In my my own thought about how you ought to teach... Because everything in me sort of screams out. If you all were to start saying, you know, I used some metaphor, and you all were saying, that doesn't make any sense. You want us to eat your body? What are you talking about? I would immediately say, no, 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 no. I'm just using a metaphor. I mean, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, this is what I mean, of course, is. And then I would explain it. This is what Jesus says to them when they start saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He he has really put it right in their face. They're saying that's weird. Eat your flesh. He's saying yes, that's what I mean. Eat, eat it. Drink my blood. I mean, I mean, we lose. We're so we have so wrapped this in a religious sort of haze that we have lost sight of how provocative he is trying to be here. His answer to them is outrageous. I mean, it's. It says right after this that the crowd left. They said, well, We don't want to have anything to do with this guy. He is really weird. Or the true food. Now, he has been making clear all along. I mean he says, Work for the bread that endures. And they say, Well, what do you mean by work? Well, I'm talking about believing in me. He has the the nature of the metaphor has been pretty clear. I mean, the literal reality is something that he has been referring to all along. The literal reality is stuff like eternal life, believing, coming to him, his flesh, his body, is the means by which the eternal life is going to come. All of that is straightforward. The unstraightforward part is throughout the whole thing, he describes it in terms of eating. Eat this bread the believing, the getting eternal life, all of that he's wrapping up in this metaphor, I want you to eat my body, that he comes to in the end. This is not where he started. And I have the picture in my mind that that's not necessarily where he intended to get at the beginning. It's the crowd, this conversation, that has taken things in this direction. He, each thing that he has said has been a response to their question or their issue. What? And you say, well, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in that sort of situation. A thought comes to mind and you say it and people respond to it and all of a sudden you're running with it. You know, hey, this, I like this. This is working. So the, the point that I wanted to make Let me just finish reading here. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. The point here, what Jesus is getting at, he never explains how it is that his flesh is that food. But it's not hard for us to figure out when we look at the the vast amount of writing in the New Testament about how Jesus' death on the cross is the propitiation for God. It is like he is the high priest who is offering his own body an offering to God to redeem us. And that offering is accepted by God and God's people find forgiveness, acceptance, and life because our high priest has offered his own body up to be broken. That's the picture that we get from the New Testament. Well, Jesus doesn't explain that here, but He comes right up to the edge of it. What He's saying is, there is an eternal life to be won. God gives it to those who come to Me. And what is it that I'm doing? How is it that I'm bringing this life? I am offering up My body. My flesh and blood. In other words, My death. My death. It is my death that is going to bring life. That is the profound idea that Jesus is talking about in this exchange. His intention, it seems to me, is very clear as we go through it. The bread that I fed you yesterday was just a sign that I am the Messiah. Getting that kind of bread isn't going to do anything for you. If you set your sights on three square meals a day, you are aiming too low because in the end, that's going to fail you. I came to bring eternal life. That's why I did that miracle yesterday. Not to give you bread, but to show you that I am the one to come to for life. I am bringing this life through my flesh and blood, that is, through my death. And you must face the choice, are you going to believe in me and enter into life? Or are you going to turn away from me and find destruction? All of that, it seems to me, is very clear and straightforward in the passage. And then there is this one metaphor that runs through the whole thing. Bread. The manna that Moses brought is not the true bread. Jesus is the true bread. Bread. His body broken for us is the true bread because it brings life. So, now, why did I go through all of this? It seems clear to me in this passage that Jesus cannot be talking about the Eucharist, about the ceremony of eating bread and drinking wine and so on, because it's clear throughout that he is not speaking literally when he comes to this eating stuff. It's this metaphor. I mean, he's extending and he's explaining it as he goes along. He's making it very clear, really, in spite of the fact that at certain spots he's very cryptic. The fact is he's being very clear about what the point is. Eternal life, believe in me, come to me, and is my body that will be the means to bring about this life. To take this passage and turn it into a teaching about communion, about the Eucharist, that it is in eating the flesh and drinking the blood that I am going to enter into life, is to push aside all of the context that shows what it is that Jesus means to be talking about. When they say, what is the work that we do to get this life? Here's Jesus. He gives them an explicit answer to their question. And He doesn't say, enter into the ceremony of the Eucharist. He says, believe in me. Believe in the, me as the Messiah who has come to bring eternal life. Come to me for the life that I have brought. That's what he explicitly tells them. And then he metaphorically describes it in terms of eating. Why? Because the issue is food. We see Jesus do this in the Gospel of John. John portrays Jesus as as the, making these various "I am" statements in various contexts. In another context, he'll say, "I'm the door." In another context, he'll say, "I am the water of life." He didn't say that because he didn't say that he's the water of life because there's a ceremony that we go through where we drink water or even the ceremony of baptism, it is a picture. He himself is like water is to our physical existence. What water is to our physical existence, what he has come to bring is to our spiritual and ultimate eternal existence. As bread and manna in the wilderness is to our physical existence, what Jesus did on the cross is for our eternal well-being. Do you want something that sustains you, that keeps you going, that gives you life and satisfies your hunger and thirst? Well, Jesus is the one. And what He did on the cross is, is the means by which He is going to satisfy our hunger and our thirst and sustain us forever. Is this relevant to what it is we celebrate when we do the Lord's Supper? Yes, it is. But is this passage a teaching that says the supernatural means to arriving at life is to have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? No. This passage is saying the supernatural means to life is Jesus' death on the cross and believing in that. That's what we're being called upon to do. Okay, well... Um that's what I wanted to say this morning about uh, this passage to prepare us then next week for looking at the actual Last Supper, the Passover that Jesus and his disciples celebrated and the relation of that to this ceremony that Jesus goes through on that night. It's very important, I think, for us to understand the significance of his death because that's what he's going to be talking about there, and the fact that in this passage we are not seeing the institution of a sacrament, but we are seeing a profound metaphor about where real life and death ultimately is going to come from. Okay, any questions? We're kind of late, but we got started late today. I'm going to take the liberty of taking a few more minutes here. There may not be much that you have questions about this morning. I would understand that. Going once. Going twice. Fair warning. Sold.